Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio here with me Eileen Pollock. Um, Eileen, thanks for coming. Oh, I always love seeing you, T. <laughs> and, and me, you. <laughs> and it's been a few years because you're a friend of the show. You, you, you were, I think... I think the last time we talked, we were actually renovating the station. Mm -hmm. So we were across the hall in, right. in the, the engineer's uh, room. And, and so now you're seeing... <laughs> Pretty classy <laughs> now. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, Eileen, you're in town with your latest novel, A Perfect Life. Um, and you'll be reading tonight at Literati. Right, at, at, at seven. At seven. And the talk actually has a really... It had a kind of an interesting name attached to it um love sex and biology yeah. at literati <laughs> um so folks 7 p.m tonight <laughs> um wh why the belly like what's the well the so it you know it's a novel and there's a love story um but it's a love story that it has well and there's sex involved <laughs> as there is sometimes in a love story um but it's also has a lot to do with biology. The main character, Jane Weiss, is a biologist. She's a, a postdoc. Um, and she's, so her mother died of this terrible disease. And it's a genetic disease. So Jane herself has a 50-50 chance of having inherited it. Um, and the novel takes place back in the 1980s, and there had never been um, a disease for which the scientists could find a genetic marker. And so they are, she is engaged in a hunt to find the marker for the gene for the disease that killed her mother and that she might or might not have. And her sister Laurel may might or, or might not have, right? And they're both young enough, they're both in their 30s, um, that... If they don't have the disease, they could marry and have children. And no, they're not going to die this terrible death that they watch their mother die of. And um, but if they if Jane finds the marker for the gene, they can take a test. It will be the first test for a genetic disease. And what if they do have it? Um, and it's actually based on a, a, a true story. Um, so of course she falls in love with somebody and. The person she falls in love with also is at risk for the disease, but he has this completely different attitude, which is life isn't about genetic tests and trying to have a perfect kid. It's, you know, if you love somebody, you find a way and you have kids and if they're healthy, great. And if they're not healthy, you you love them and you find a way. And so if they f fall in love with each other, um, what's going to happen, you know? Um, which philosophy will prevail. <laughs> and so there, it's like a bit of a, it's a scientific detective story of sorts because will Jane find the genetic marker, right. some of the pieces of the puzzle? And, and then if she does, who has it, who doesn't have it, and how will that affect her, her life, her sister's life, and her uh, relationship with this guy, Willie? With Willie. Um, and so, and at the top of that program, um, we heard a song, the the Shaker song. It's a gift to be simple. It's a gift to be free. Right. Can Can you say like why did that lead off the show? Well, okay. So um, in in real life, so this um, was a woman I knew in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the 1980s. She was working in the same lab as my then husband, and um, it was really the hunt for the gene for Huntington's chorea. Um, and uh, I should say. 
um, Woody Guthrie, the folk singer, uh, also died of Huntington's, and his son Arlo Guthrie also is at risk for was at risk for Huntington's. And so this is that's where sort of I got the idea from a woman who was really working this, and then I I thought about Arlo and what if they fell in love. Um, in, so what if this real life woman who was actually working at this MIT lab, right. searching searching for the genetic marker, would happen to meet? Well, she Arlo, wouldn't, it wouldn't just be chance because I actually got the idea because Arlo was doing some kind of fundraiser for the Huntington's Disease Foundation, and it made perfect sense. Who do you have the most in common with but somebody else whose parent died of this disease? And you would meet him at all the foundation events and who would understand what you were going through. So who would you fall in love with? And he is, of course, statistically the worst possible man for her to fall in love with and vice versa. So talk about tension and conflict right. in, a, in a novel. <laughs> well, um, you know, and I'll get to the shakers in a second. But, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're a writer these days and you have two people fall in love, right, and they both love each other, where can the conflict come from, right? In the old days... People couldn't get a divorce or they were the wrong religion or different races. And, you know, none of that's true anymore. So I thought, well, where does the marriage plot stand today? Well, your genes could keep you apart, right? So that was my, my thinking. It would be a love story where your your medical history made it. Um, that was the obstacle. Now, in, in real life, um, so when you look for a genetic marker, you need a, f- a really huge family, a lot of related people who preferably who've been interbreeding for <laughs> centuries. Preferably. And preferably. And then you can look at who has the disease and who doesn't and look at their genes and try to match up, you know, well, if all the people who have the disease have this marker, then it must be associated. I mean, I'm over, grossly oversimplifying. but And in real life, um, the research on Huntington's was done on a huge family in the jungles of Argentina. Well, no, Venezuela, I'm sorry. And I didn't want to have to send my novel in Venezuela. So I, um, and often it's a religious group that has something to do with religion because people in religions intermarry, right? So there's a lot of work done, for example, on the Amish because they've intermarried, you know, they have a tight community. So I went from Amish to Shakers in my head because I know a lot more about the Shakers than the Amish. And I, so I, for my novel, the research is done on a island in Maine where, that originally was settled by a Shaker community. And so the gene has sort of permeated that um, family. And the gift to be simple, gift to be free is a, is a Shaker hymn. And uh, Eileen, what, what was the reason you chose to make up like a parallel, um, neurodegenerative right. disease. Why would you make that choice as the writer? Right. So in my novel, I don't, I don't call it Huntington's. I call it Valentine's disease, Valentine's Korea, um, because I didn't want to have to stick too close to the, um, to the facts. I, didn't, I wanted to take liberties with the life of the scientist who really did this work. I certainly was going to take liberties with the sister, the father, the family. And I wanted to... I didn't want people like jumping on me because I got one detail about Huntington's career wrong. So I figured if I changed the name of the disease and and the name of the people, I could fictionalize, you know, the story more um, freely. Yes. And to have the freedom for that imaginative 
quality that's necessary right. for the fiction to right. to be alive on the page right. even. And so Valentine's though, that way it's almost like, so then it has a double meaning with the love story right. attached. You know how I thought of that? So when AIDS started, um, the writer David Levitt wrote a story and, and Susan Sontag also wrote about this and I'm not remembering which of the two said this, but that AIDS was different because it was a disease you gave to somebody because you loved them, you had sex with them. It, it, what a way to pass on death, you know? Um, this was something we all, it's the most basic human need. It's a disease of love, right? And so I think that was in the back of my mind when I called it Valentine's, that this is, you know, if you pass this on to your child or you bring this into your marriage, because you're at risk for a disease, you're not doing it out of spite. You're not, you know, it's a, you know, there are a couple of people who I guess slept, knew they had AIDS and tried to infect people, but most people, that's not how it happens. And so it seemed to me it was a disease of love. What is, what's that all about? And then, and and how it plays out in this story with Valentine's as the neurodegenerative Mm -hmm. um, disease, um, it allows us, like, what what you mentioned already a little bit, Eileen, like this idea and what's in the title, A Perfect Life. Like, what is what is disease and what is the clock that each of us have and um, the timing? And- exactly. So, um, oh, and I should back up and say uh, it's called Valentine's Disease because it was discovered by Meriwether Valentine. So it's not like, <laughs> I didn't, you know, in the book, it's not as if everybody draws little hearts around it. It's right. I made up a guy named Valentine, who discovers the disease in the 1800s. Um, And I like how you put that in ever so subtly, so it feels more like a fact, because I think it's even in parentheses, somewhere like quarter way through the book. So it's not a big song and dance. There's not a large departure into a a mini narrative. What's funny is, so that was inspired by, um, so Huntington, the scientist who discovered Huntington's Korea, um, found a population of people suffering from Huntington's, and everybody thought it was not, they didn't know about genes, right? So they thought, well, what, why do these people act so strange? And, you know, it's almost as if they're drunk and their minds go, it must be because they're poor and they drink too much and they're just dissolute, filled with vice. And, and so I took almost the exact wording from his first passage about trying to figure out why this population had this disease and I just gave it to this made up uh, Meriwether Valentine when he stumbles on this first population of Huntington's pa- of Valentine's patient what becomes known as Valentine's disease um, now I think I forgot what the original question was but um, well I'm satisfied <laughs> I'm satisfied oh, oh and then I slipped it in yeah okay <laughs> yes like how it's woven neatly right. into there um, into the storyline um, oh I know what you, you would ask was that everybody has this imperfection and, and right so um, what I was trying to get at is that um, you know when in the 1980s when so my ex-husband is a geneticist and much of what I know about all of this comes from watching what went on in his lab other people's labs and they were coming up with these tests for the first time and I thought well what are we going to do with that knowledge you know people think they're going to plan having a perfect kid or a perfect life but there are so many other things besides genetic diseases that 
keep you from having a perfect life, are we going to try to engineer away those too? You know, and so really everybody in the book, um, there are immigrants, there's, you know, the nurse is African American, and she says she wishes her son as a young black man had a 50 50 chance of, you know, not getting, you know, dying of some something terrible. Um, so yeah, that's very much what I've wanted the title to convey. And when did you come up with that title? Like when did you very did late? It... The original title was the Valentine's gene. And my publisher didn't like that. She didn't want the word gene in there. It sounded too sciencey. So we racked our brains for weeks. And then I was going through the book and I saw Willie and in fact, from the passage that I think I'll read later, where he and Jane are arguing about what constitutes a perfect life and you know what considerations you should think about when you're trying to decide whether to marry somebody whether to have children or not well that actually reminds me to do a quick shout out to thank Rachel for send, sending the book out <laughs> and is this is Rachel who you were who you were talking about No no my about the, no Megan the, Lynch who's oh, Megan. my wonderful editor at Echo um so we went through hundreds of titles and then we when we got perfect life we 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 knew it was, knew perfect it was title. the one. It's, sung. <laughs> it's strange, though, that the response was it's too sciencey because maybe we'll talk a little bit about women in science a little bit later. And yes, let's, for sure. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Today, Eileen Pollock is here. Her novel on the table with us out this year with Echo, um, an imprint of HarperCollins, A Perfect Life. Eileen will be reading tonight at Literati. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Eileen Pollack is here in the studio. Her novel, A Perfect Life, um, just out this year with Echo. Um, and we've got the Liz behind the glass engineering for us this afternoon. Um, before we get back to the conversation, Eileen, I'm just going to read the short bio in the back of A Perfect Life. Um, Eileen Pollock holds a BS in physics from Yale and an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. She is the author of two story collections, two previous novels, and two books of nonfiction, and has received fellowships from the NEA, the Mishner Foundation, and the Rona Jaffe Foundation. 
Her work has been included in the Best American Short Stories and the Best American Essays series. She is a former director and current faculty member of the Helen Zell MFA program in creative writing at the University of Michigan. She divides her time between Ann Arbor, Michigan, and New York City. Um, and Eileen, I'm so glad you're here today as you're coming through town. And well, Ann Arbor's pretty much home, you know, here in New York now, but I, I lived in Ann Arbor full time for 22 years, so <laughs> um, this really does feel like home. Like home. Yes. Well, it's good. To, it's good to have you back in the, mm -hmm. the the Ann Arbor radius for a little while before you head to Chicago, and then other other places to, yeah. for the book. Um, I'll be reading in Corvallis, Oregon, and um, at Univers Washington State University in Pullman, and a bunch of other places. But it's you can check my website if you're interested where I'll be. <laughs> okay, and that is what, and the website is EileenPollock.com, which is a very very nice address to have. <laughs> um, so Eileen, at the at the break, right before the break, we started talking about um, this idea of the a, a title with Gene in it was too sciency, perhaps mm -hmm. for a novel. And um, it seems to me like this is a novel where people are thinking about genetics, where it's like its time has come, and having a, a woman as the um, the main researcher is also it's it's great that she's the lead mm -hmm. character who's um, leading this. Can can you talk a little bit about this? Like when when you wrote the book, what ideas you had about where you would place it, sure. and this whole deal with to sciency. Yeah. So um, I sort of lived through the book in the 80s. I mean, I watched it happening. I didn't do the research. Um, and then I wrote it in the 90s. And we, um, my agent, my then agent sent it around. And um, basically what I was hearing, and it was pretty much the book it is now. I mean, over the years, I trimmed it. I you know, made little changes. Um, but it basically what I heard was men don't read fiction written by women and women's book groups won't read anything with science in it. And I heard that from female editors. Um, so I, I would put it away and then people who had read it would say, whatever happened to that novel? It was such a good read and, you know, why? And I'd say, well, okay. And I'd get it out. I'd make some few more tweaks and we kind of got the same response. Um, and then, you know, I published this nonfiction book, The Only Woman in the Room, which is about why there's still so few women in the hard sciences. And that was just last year, Eileen. Yeah. And that book really took off. And um, it's part of a sort of wave of interest in why there's still so few women and minorities in the sciences. Um, biology, of course, is better. Um, but even there, you know, there are a lot of um, biases that affect women and minorities. Um, when I wrote the book, I mean, I, I registered that the main character was a female scientist, but that was not the point of the book. It was I liked that she was female, but it was just based on somebody who was living. You know, I, I knew a good story when I saw it. Um, but then I think its time came because now it was kind of cooler to think about, you know, and to not be afraid of science and to think, to realize that a lot of women not only aren't afraid of science, they love science or they would be interested in it and maybe some men would read it too. And um, so uh, now, you know, I think really, and of course, 
um, I could see coming the time when we would have all these tests that we didn't know what to do with, you know, and, and all the science that we were living with every day, whether it's tech or, you know, genetics or health science, where, you know, the scientific communities move so far ahead, but we as human beings haven't really kept up. It's, you know, at any moment somebody could say to you, oh, you know, yes, you're pregnant, you and your spouse are pregnant, um, but we think your child has this genetic disease and here's what might happen and what are you going to do about it? And nobody was thinking about that. And, of course, um, today it's a much more, you know, we realize that we have these dilemmas to think about. Um, so I think, I guess, the time's caught up with <laughs> with the novel. Um, and, so, and so when... Um and then Jenny well, Ferrari Adler, who's also a friend of the show, right? And when she is your agent right. now, well, she she read um, uh, the book and and really liked it, and she read the manuscript and really liked it. She had some good suggestions, and then she very quickly got um, a, a lot of interest, <laughs> very quickly generated for the book, and uh, there was a, there was really a, a you know a heated um, pursuit of of the book. And so, you know, for all you writers out there, you sometimes you just have to keep the faith and wait for people to catch up with you <laughs> and to get the right the right advocates in your corner. And like you said, you said, I, I know a good story when I hear one. You knew that this was a story right. that needed to be told. And so it's also like a, you know, people are calling it, I feel like something like, is it a medical thriller? Well, you know, yeah. it has a real plot. I mean, the plot yeah. is given. Is she going to find? Is Jane going to find the marker for the gene? Is she going to? Is there going to be a test? And if there's a test, does she have it? Does her sister have it? Does Willie have it? What? Well, depending on who has it or doesn't have it, what are they going to do about that? And, you know, as a writer, you love to know <laughs> where your book is going to go. Um, and then I could kind of weave the love story and the and the relationship between the sisters and stuff, the more literary stuff around um, around the the plot. So when you were um, sketching out the book, did you have these like main? How did you do it? Like, what did it look like? Oh, or can you, <laughs> in the, in the 90s. Well, my right. stuff is always always a mess when it starts, and you know, and then on drift number 10, it starts to you know. Um, the writing starts to look a lot better. Um, but uh, what did it, you know, I, I knew the story of, um, I didn't know, here's here's the interesting thing. I knew they were going to find the marker because in real life they did. And of course, it then it ups the ante. Well, what are the results going to be? Um, but I purposely didn't um, allow myself to decide who was going to have the disease or not until I got there. So as you were writing... Right. Well, I until um, Jane actually does the tests, I on the first draft, I didn't know what the results would be. And so, and why did you do that? Like, what well, was if it was going to be a surprise to me, it would be a surprise to the reader. I didn't want to uh, inadvertently give it away or make it heavy-handed, and I wanted to recreate that feeling of really not knowing. And she wouldn't know. There's just no her sister who is not a science head <laughs> the way Jane is. She in fact drops out of college and becomes a dancer, and she leads this very. So part one thing that interested me. Um, so in real life, the researcher's sister is is a very sane and sober person. But 
Um, I had read about people who react to the threat of having, you know, of having a parent die. They just decide they have it. They think because they look like the parent, they must have gotten the gene. It has nothing to do with whether you look like your parent or not. And that some people then live this very reckless life because they figure, I'm going to die anyway. And they don't go to college and they run up huge credit card bills and do very reckless things like extreme sports. And I thought, well, how interesting is that? So the sister's more like that. And I just didn't want to tip the balance. I didn't want to um, know who was going to have it or not. But the sister, because she's not very sciencey, just has all these mistaken assumptions about she's just sure she's going to get it. Um, whereas Jane keeps trying to convince her, no, no, you don't get the genetics of it. Um, and really, reading the book, you really don't have to. You could just totally skim over the science parts. I mean, to me, it's very elementary genetics. It's very elementary biology that she explains, because she's always explaining it to Willie, who also right. doesn't have a college education. And she's the whole book is really the monologue she's developing in her head, because she's going to have to go tell her daughter... Lila. Yeah, Lila. Or Lila. Uh, <laughs> you know, so so those are two good reasons that the science is really pretty, you know, simple. Um, but even if you don't get it, even if science scares you, you can just skip over it. Oh, she's doing some test thing to figure out what the gene is, and it still works. <laughs> right. But I, I think that was something that I noticed, because early, early in the, the book, maybe, let's see, page five even, is where I think... I noticed, oh, oh, you have a way of writing about science for the fiction reader who is like the lay person. Mm -hmm. And so translating that into the story. And I think at some point you have like her sketching it out on like a maybe a, a placemat place at yeah, a restaurant yeah. for Willie. And he takes it. Like right. He, what, and also always bothered me that the guy authors get to do all this science stuff and the women don't. So you have you like Richard Powers and Thomas Pynchon and all these David Foster Wallace, you know, people who are lionized for like, oh, my God, he's a fiction writer, but he does all this physics. And, you know, there's all this cool computer stuff. And, you know, Neil Stevenson. And then if you're a woman and you do it, it's like, oh, Women just want love stories. You're ruining it, and and you can't bring in science because it's not literary and it's not, you know, it's just not done. And I just it just drove me crazy because the guys get extra points for doing right. that stuff. Well, just it almost seems hard to hear. Like I keep thinking, but surely not now. Well, yeah, now too. Now <laughs> You'd too. be surprised. Well, what's your next project? Because I think you should keep going. <laughs> well, I have I have a lot of uh, projects kind of going. So there's uh, a novel that's coming out a, a little over a year from now called The Bible of Dirty Jokes that's about Great a woman title. who grows up wanting to be a stand-up comic at a time when it's not done if you're a woman. And in her 50s, she finally gets, she finally does it and she gets to, to do stand-up in Vegas. It's also a murder mystery. And it's very... Uh, raunchy. It's totally raunchy. And that one didn't get published for a long time be be because before the movie Bridesmaids came out, a woman writer couldn't be raunchy. You couldn't be a stand-up comic and you couldn't do, you know, blue humor, you know. Right. And you couldn't write a raunchy book. So you wrote this in the 90s as well, Eileen? Uh, more the 2000s. Early? Yeah. Okay. And, and so now it's okay for women to be raunchy. So that one's coming out. The one I'm working on is about a woman who is a professor of future studies, and 
she studies immortality theory. So I'm just taking the science thing and, you know, sort of running with it and sort of saying, if you don't think I should do it, well, I am anyway. Here it (laughs) is. is. (laughs) We'll take a short break and then we'll be back today on Living Writers. Eileen Pollack is here. Her novel, A Perfect Life. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. I'm Tia Hetzel. Today in the studio, Eileen Pollack joins us. Her novel, A Perfect Life, out this year with Echo Press. Um, Eileen, thanks. so this, this song that we just heard is a, is a song about sisters. And the sisters are a, give real heart into this. It's not just right. a love story. It's a family story. It's a sister right. story. So, yeah, so the women singing that, the McGarrigal sisters, I think, um, uh, it's a song about love. I mean, not sisterly love, actually. It's about a broken heart. Um, but um, in, in the novel, In a Perfect Life, you know, the, the relationship between the two sisters is very important. And they really love each other, but they don't understand each other. One is very much a scientist and a doer, you know, oh, my God, we might have this disease. And she really loves her sister. And so she's like, let's find the test for it. Let's find the cure for it. Um, I should add that their father is the one who is funding all this research. So he also wants to save both of them. It's very much a family story, too. Um, but the sister... You know, as I said, she's reacted by dropping out of college. She becomes, she had played the cello when she's young, and then she becomes a dancer. Um, And so she's much more, you know, a a sort of feelings type of person. And, um, you know, those are the two halves of me. You know, I have this science background, and I often think like a scientist, but then I became a writer, an artist. I live around writers and artists and you know it's all about emotion and beauty and feeling and those two parts of my life and parts of myself are often I wouldn't say at war with each other because they're not but they're you know definitely (laughs) sort of shifting around trying to figure out how to live in the same person and um, I think that's one of the um, ways what I'm trying to so the two sisters in that way represent the two kinds of human reaction to, say, a disease, you know, 
do you react by, um, oh, we're going to fix this, or we're going to figure out how to live with this, or we're going to kill ourselves, you know, I mean, because there's no hope, or we're just going to fall in love with somebody and have children and make the best of it. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's how the, um, the sisters, and of course, see, Jane's in this terrible position because if she allows herself to fall in love with someone who is also at risk for the disease, she may get her heart broken because he may die or she may die or they may have a kid who's affected. But she really loves him, and so if she breaks it off, she's going to have a broken heart, right, which is what the title, you know, that's what that song is about. Um, and, it, and, can, and can you fix a broken heart really ever? Um, We're just going to leave all the listeners hanging with that. <laughs> Everyone will have to just we'll think about that, can you? Um, so the... The development and the portrayal of the sisters' relationship in the novel, as well as Jane's relationship with Willie, like these are some of the elements then that we might more easily recognize as mm-hmm. like literary fiction, you know, like the the the, the elements of that that you said um, the publishers were more expecting. So they they're they're doing the work to to deepen some of the the detective story aspect of this. Right. You know, I think if I were just interested in the science of it, I would have done the book as nonfiction. Yes, because you you can do that. Because I could do that. (laughs) But um, I really was interested in looking at all this other stuff, and you kind of have to make it up in order to think about it in a certain way. And also, um, the scientist's sister in real life had written a memoir about what it would have been like in their family to live with the disease and then the actual science of um, what her sister had done um, to find the gene. So in a way, the sister had already in real life written the nonfiction version. So I really wanted to turn it into into fiction, into literature, um, which, you know, it's really just a matter, I think, I think any subject can be literary. It's, do you avoid the cliches? Can you um, give it a voice, give the language some music, um, get to the emotions? I mean, you know, you're trying to move people. And I don't, you know, whether I succeeded or not, I don't know. But but that was very much what I was trying to do to, to really bring it alive. And and to and it will reach. This is a story that can reach more people in different right. ways than maybe exactly the, the and, memoir. And would. you know, people have been writers have been doing this since the very beginning. I mean, you're a poet, you know. So John Donne, you know, a lot of his poetry, which is just beautiful love poetry, is based on the science of his day. You know, blood and compasses and and all sorts of things. And you know, William Carlos Williams was a a doctor. Um, there are. Um, you know, there have always been people taking, it's it's such a big part of human existence, what we now know about our bodies, about the earth, about the universe. How can we, how do we keep all of that out of our literature? And it why would, would be, you even attempt it, It really? would be such a one-sided version of what it's like to be human in the 21st century where science is... So here's something I've been thinking about a lot, okay? Self-driving cars, right, are going to be programmed with moral decisions 
like if there's a pedestrian in front of the car, to avoid the pedestrian, you would kill the people in your car or you could hit the pedestrian and save the car. Your computer, your car will be programmed to make that decision for you. Whereas I want to make that decision myself. I either want to be noble and give my life so the pedestrian can live, or I'll be an SOB and run the pedestrian over and save myself. But that's science deciding what it means to be human. And we're not going to even get the choice, chance to make that decision. The auto engineers are going to make it for us. I don't, how can we not write about that? How is that yeah. not something that, and I don't think it's only for nonfiction. I think it's, it's become the texture of our lives, stuff like that. And trying to catch up ethically with what's happening. And uh, yeah, last week. Because even if you're not writing about that, mm -hmm. it's going to be part of your character's life. It's just yes. our lives are now, you know, these waves of, you know, every kind of radio wave and microwave and broad, you know, it's just literally part of the texture of our of our world now. And it seems like I, I'm, I'm actually shocked at that the example that you're giving about moral, like there's going to be some sort of programming that's even possible because who makes those decisions right. and how does the how does a program like that what does that even look like and and wouldn't it also could it possibly be worse if when you get the car you're given like you can decide early if that's I mean, which how you model want do you want the, the save car to save the pedestrian right. model or the save yourself model it might come to that I don't know. Maybe we need more trains. I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to Amtrak. Amtrak, get your act together. Let's do something with trains. The rest of the world can have functioning train systems. Okay, so Eileen, let's. Could, would you mind reading for us so we could hear some of the prose? Sure, sure. So I'm going to read from a little bit of the sex part, not the science part. Um, so this is a scene... Um, Jane has gone to this island in Maine where so many of the people have the gene for Valentine's, and there's been a bloodletting party, so they have to get everybody to donate blood. So they, um, the scientists bring alcohol, and they hold a dance. And so in, to get to the dance and to get the alcohol, you have to give your blood. And it's kind of—and Willie has come along with her partly because he— is falling in love with her, and partly because he really has his doubts about all this research and where it's going to lead. Um, Willie has a drinking problem. And he's Well, he's a recovered alcoholic, but he gets so freaked out by seeing all these people who have the disease that his father had that he has a beer or two, which worries them both. And so after this party, he and Jane go off. Um, it's on an island, so they basically go off to the beach, um, and we don't know what's going to happen. So this is at night. And it, what happens is they sort of start off having an argument about whether they should have a relationship and what it would be like to marry and have a kid. So Jane, Jane writes, I told him that despite what he might think, I wasn't the type of person who was going to spend her whole life sitting around trying to become perfect. I had too much to get done. He pulled away. You think I'm trying to lead the perfect life? You don't see me planning who I'm going to fall in love with according to a bunch of statistical formulas and graphs on a placemat. You don't see me spending my life trying to make sure I have this perfect kid. He doesn't need to be perfect, I said. Yeah, tell me you wouldn't marry me right now if I could guarantee I don't have that damn gene, that you don't have it, 
that we could have ourselves a 100% grade-A certified healthy kid. He pressed his hands against my head. You know what Nirvana is, Jane? I'll tell you what Nirvana is. It's watching your kid eat Cheerios. You ever see a kid eat a bowl of Cheerios? The way he dips the spoon in the bowl? The way he brings it up to his mouth and makes sure he gets everything in? The way he chews? He's not thinking about anything except those Cheerios. That's Nirvana. And making love is Nirvana. Here, on this ledge, on the darkest night you've ever seen, and not thinking about anything else but making love. He unbuckled my watch. Then he burrowed in my trouser pockets and took out my radiation badge and a calculator. He made a pile beside the cliff like a cairn. Don't think, I kept thinking. It occurred to me that neither of us had brought a a condom. Don't think, I thought again. Put your hand around his neck. Lie back. Don't say no. My foot hit a tin can. It clattered down the cliff. Willie started kissing me, and I couldn't think of anything about except how lucky I was, because in the midst of so much nothing, I had been allowed to exist, to think everything I had ever thought, learn everything I had ever learned, feel everything I had ever felt. I had seen chicks in their shells. I had seen burning bushes and rotting deer, and I had been allowed to fall in love with someone as completely as I now loved this man. Thank you, Eileen. Sure. So that's that's Jane and Willie's love story <laughs> there. Um, and it's I love how the title that is, like, so that was the passage where you found the title for the novel. Right. So I always well. tell my students, if you can't find a title, right, you think about an object from the story or the book or, you know, if all else fails, you read the, the manuscript backwards. So you're not getting the sense of it, right? You're just waiting for some phrase to jump out at you. And you just, you don't think you just make a list of every phrase that jumps out at you. Sometimes it's a bit of dialogue or whatever. And then you look back at the list and see which phrase sounds good and has something to do with your book. It's like naming a rock band, but... (laughs) Right. um, So, yeah, so I was reading backwards through it, and I saw Perfect Life, and I went, ooh, ooh. That's it. That's (laughs) That's it. it. And there's nothing science-y about it. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for reading that for us. So we have a sense of the characters and and their their intersection there. Um, So... So Eileen, we do today. You're gonna tonight. You're gonna be at Literati, right? And um, and so will you be reading there, uh, like a, a certain section, or is it gonna be more of a talk? Um, I'm gonna read a little bit and then answer questions. So yeah, okay, but a different section. A this diff- was a well, living that, writers exclusive, right? Well, I might wink, be wink. a little bit of that coming oh, up tonight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I always want to read the sexy parts. <laughs> Is that another, is that another, another tip role, yeah. for that? Okay. <laughs> um, well, tonight, Eileen Pollock will be reading at Literati um, from her novel that we've got here and that you've just had a chance to hear um, a, a section of A Perfect Life. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll be back um, in just a moment.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And if you're just joining us, I'm glad you did, because today on the program, Eileen Pollock is here. Her latest novel, A Perfect Life, um, is on the table with us. And Eileen, when I was getting ready um, for the show, I was just thinking, you've got, you've, you've amassed quite a collection of like and and across different boundaries and borders like you've got collections of short stories um creative nonfiction. you've written a textbook mm-hmm. <laughs> you've written the textbook <laughs> um and a companion book uh mm-hmm. with readings and exercises so um and and novels when you're what's like it sounds to me now that some of the you're working on the next novel and mm-hmm. that's is that's what is that what what is lighting you up as a writer or do you have some of these projects going at like also at the same time well i i've kind of had an interesting career in that i've been writing for a long time i have a lot of different interests and i thought that would be a good thing to have a lot of different interests but you it turns out you people want you to be one thing and then you're known as that thing. You can be labeled and branded as that thing, and they know what shelf to put you on. Um, and then you have an audience and a platform and a following and all this stuff. And I've had so many different interests. You know, I have science and uh, physics and all that. Um, and you started in, in newspaper writing with that, right? Well, or magazine writing? Yeah, I, I have been a, a reporter and such, but not yeah. not for very long. But I also, I grew up in a very, very heavily Jewish part of the world in the Borscht Belt, the Catskills, which is sort of where Dirty Dancing is set. And so, you know, I've written about a lot about, you know, growing up in the, in this very Jewish place, and it made me really care about comedy, stand-up comedy, because that's what the Catskills were known for. So some of my fiction is very serious. Some of it's very comic. Um, I... Um, you know, was in, I'm interested in politics. So one of my books, Breaking and Entering, is set in Michigan, has to do with the, the far right. Um, and when I wrote the book, everybody's like, well, you're making these people up. And now, of course, in this election, everybody's going, oh, it's Trump versus, you know, Hillary is what you were writing about. Although it was Trump versus, I mean, it, it was sort of Trump supporters versus Obama supporters at the time, or Clinton supporters even. So again, ahead of your time here. Right. And songs. so, you know, so basically, um, I have a lot of different kinds of stuff. And um, it's all catching up now. And sort of now, now people are sort of getting who I am. And my stuff is coming out at a you know, stuff I couldn't publish before. So I actually, there's the project I'm working on, which is this new novel. Um, but then there are all the other projects are, are bubbling and coming out. And so, you know, it's wonderful, but it's also, um, usually I'm like very focused on one thing, but right now I have so many things going on. It's really kind of wonderful. There's even, um, okay, here you can have an exclusive. So I wrote a nonfiction book about this, uh, white woman named, um, Catherine Weldon, who lived with Sitting Bull during the last couple of years of his life. And it's a um, a book that uh, came out in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, that was also ahead of its time, I think. And now um, I don't want to give too much away, but it's going to be a major motion picture. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Yeah. So now that has to do with Native American stuff and, and um, you know, what it's like 
people who cross boundaries they're not supposed to cross sort of politically and um, what it means to be a white liberal if you're interested in the fight against racism and you want to help another group, you know, can you do that? And um, I don't want to say any more about it. But are you write, Are you helping to write the screenplay? No, not at all. No, okay. Um, I am a, uh, supposedly a consultant. Consultant, uh, right? Okay. But it's I. It's a very exciting project, and um, so there's just so much going on, and I I, I feel great about it. But it's um, uh, it's very different for me now that that there's a lot of stuff coming at me from every direction. But I'm happy about it. So. Yes, it sounds <laughs> it, well. I'm glad. It's, I'm happy too. Um, and and so it's but it sounds like within all of this, like the so much excitement and stuff <laughs> happening, it seems like you're also conscious of moving forward, like having this other novel and and bringing and moving it forward. Well, it's nice to have something that you're working on when you you know when you get the time and that you can move forward on, but to not feel pressured to get it done in a really quick time frame um so it's it's kind of the best of both worlds and and i love that it's also has to do with also taking keeping on with this science right like bringing that in the foreground yeah. um are you will you also have powerful uh women characters in this next book as well well so the main character is a woman so she's this perf- she's invented this field called future studies and um is studying immortality theory but of course she's the otherwise it's all men um, which is very true. So if you read any books about the future, if you look in the table of contents, there'll be like 20 contributors to it and, and 19 of them are men. Women somehow never, I, I think they don't have time to think about the future because they're so busy in the present taking care of, you know, their job and their family and everything. Um, you know, it's hard to keep up. But again, if women and minorities are not in on the future, on who's planning the future, then again, you know, who, what kind of, how are those cars going to be programmed? And, you know, or when the um, when they first invented uh, airbags in cars, they designed them for men, right? Because they were male engineers and it never occurred to them that the women, there might be a woman or a child sitting in the passenger seat. So the first airbags, I'm told, would, you know, blow up to save you from the accident, but with such force that they would kill somebody who was small, like if it was a small woman or a small child, that's a problem, right? right. So you want um, you want everybody thinking about, you know, this so-called post-human, transhuman future we're going to live in. You know, well, is maybe. it really called that? It post-human, is called transhuman. It, yeah, future? those are some terms. And so, uh, you know, the future is kind of being designed by these young male techies and. Um, you know, I don't think that's necessarily such a great thing. Yeah, more more voices, the better. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Well, to, um, to go back to a perfect life, but in a funny way, to go back to the very first page of it, mm-hmm. um, I was. we just heard a song by Coldplay at the break. And, and there's this sense, I feel like, from chapter one, the very beginning of this urgency mm-hmm. about Jane, about the character, setting sort of the pace. I think one of the elements that's making it like a mystery, like a thriller, too. Right. But I, I wanted to ask you, um, Eileen, about the choice because there is this like lovely line where where Jane is thinking we are divided too I think into those of us who live with a clock ticking in our heads and those of us who don't right. you know. and and I've always since I was a little little girl lived with a clock ticking in my head I just you know some kids realize very early that we're all going to die and it totally freaks them out and most people then just kind of 
make a p- their peace with it. It's it's there's something actually or called, denial. Deny. It's called de- denial. But there's actually a field of study called terror management theory, which is about the denial of death. But some people can't ever forget it, and they're always thinking like, "Oh my God, my life's so short. Have I done this? Have I done that? Have I done the other thing?" And I've always lived like that. And now, what's really in, and and so Jane is she has a better reason than I do, as far as I know. I don't have some deadly disease ticking. But um, what's really interesting that, you know, so you're you're very afraid of getting old because then you're nearer the end of the clock ticking. Um, but the reward for getting older is that once you actually feel like, oh, you know, I've done a few things, I can relax a little. So my new goal <laughs> is relaxing, having some fun, you know, um, not trying to live w- with the clock, you know, or I hear the clock ticking in my head, but what it's saying now is not so much you have to accomplish things. You have to, you know, solve the mysteries of the universe or or write a million books, but you don't have that much more time to enjoy yourself, right? You know, play some more tennis, go for a bike ride, um, take your son and go to Italy, which I just did. And, oh, um, you how know, for you and Noah. Love and, yes. You know, so... Oh, um, lovely. So, you know, yeah, I think I'm actually more, a lot more relaxed now about that clock ticking in my head than I was when I was 10 or 20 or 30, you know, it's really, really interesting. But certainly when I wrote that book, um, you know, I knew that I was creating a character who mirrored my sort of sense of urgency, like, oh my God, we're all going to die. Will I have accomplished anything, um, you know, before I go? And is, and, and on this so when you're conveying this in the writing in the ver- from the very first page, is that why you chose to have um, uh, Lila um, as a as sort of a frame, like to say that Jane, this character, to kind of move be ahead in the story in time before she looks back and tells no, the story. No, the reason or- I did it was actually to slow it down. So Lila is we we find out on the first page that who is ever talking to us, who's the scientist has a daughter named Lila, and she is explaining to Lila why Lila, why, why, why she exists. Like, why did my, your father and I have you, knowing you might get a disease? And so it's, it's called the narrative occasion for the, for the novel. And I did it to humanize everything, because if she's explaining all this to her daughter, A, she's got to keep it kind of simple, but also it's going to make everything not be about the science, but about the emotion the emotional content of what's happened, right? And so as a writer, I was trying to think, how do I make this be not just about the science, but the role of the science in this family's life? Well, how better than to say, this is this is how the science affected you, daughter that I love. And so that's, it's, it's actually to slow it down and humanize it that I came up with that frame. Thank you for saying that, because that's actually that is very interesting with that. And and after hearing you speak about um, the sense of time right now that you're experiencing, Eileen, um, I wonder if that's why Willie has like the, the Buddhist qualities introduced uh, in this. Well, when I wrote the book, I, I I made up Willie as sort of the opposite 
right? Mm-hmm. And he's how I don't feel, but it was almost like I was trying to teach myself, look, there's this other way to be. There's Laurel, but there's also Willie. And yeah, so I'm trying now <laughs> and I'm older to be more Buddhist about things. <laughs> Leaning You're towards. such a good reader, T. <laughs> they spot all these things. <laughs> Eileen, thanks for writing this book and for being here today. Well, thanks so um, much for having me. I love talking to you. Come back any day. You're always, 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 always welcome here. Thank um, you. Today on the program, you've been listening to a conversation with Eileen Pollock, her novel, A Perfect Life. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to the Liz for engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
with the long intro today, you are tuned in to 88.3 WCBN <laughs> FM Ann Arbor. This is the Daily Sports Report. I'm your host, Jeremy Parks. On the other side of the glass, Chris the intern and Alex Lopez. They're having a little trouble hearing me at 